It's Iraq week in Washington, D.C. Started on Sunday. And actually, There's a whole week for it? I, a funny anecdote. On the anniversary of Putin's invasion, uh, we had an entire week's worth of pieces on that. And then for the anniversary on the Ukraine stuff, it's just a lot. And there's a saturation to that sort of stuff in, with audience and things like that. So for the anniversary at my new gig, we just ran stuff on Sunday, which was the actual anniversary. And, and we should just remind people in case they don't know what you're referring to, that you are now part of the mainstream media yeah, in a right. really profound way. You are an editor at the Washington Post. Yeah, yeah. The lamestream media, I think they call it, right? <laughs> yeah. The people. That's what the people call it. Yeah. And yeah, so we devoted the the Sunday print page to the the opinions print page to the anniversary. And it's funny. I it's I've seen other publications that have been dribbling it out before and after, the sort of reminiscences and reflections. It's been an opportunity for supporters of the war to say why they were right <laughs> or why they were wrong. But it's funny, like we we were we talked a lot about how we'd do it and there's on the one hand there's a sense that I profoundly feel that we actually haven't had a reckoning with the war. But the counterpoint is actually, it has shaped our politics and our discourse for so long. We had about a decade of mea culpas from commentators, right? I was wrong. I'm sorry. There was a real, I forget when that was, when you had everyone from Andrew Sullivan on just writing lengthy, teary-eyed, I was wrong essays. And to be fair, we got Obama because of, because of the Iraq war. There's no way that, that Hillary may have beaten him in 2008, he managed to really dis distinguish himself, especially as someone without a lot of experience at the national level for being right on Iraq. I remember that very well in the elections. And that was something he kept coming back to. It was like, I had the judgment, no one else in Washington did. I thought that was a pretty powerful thing that seemed to, to work. And then arguably, at least in part, we got Trump because of Iraq too, <laughs> because he campaigned heavily on stupid wars and all the rest of it, right? I don't think this is arguable. I think that Obama would not have been president had it yeah. not been for the Iraq war and the Iraq war wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for 9-11. Yeah. So in some ways, Osama bin Laden caused Barack Obama to become president in some yeah. weird chain logic kind of way. And we wouldn't have had Donald Trump as president if it hadn't been for Barack Obama being president before him, because we all know how Trump got the idea to really seriously run for president. And the White House Correspondents' Dinner, like whenever that was, what, 2012 or something? Yeah, yeah, I think that's And right. Obama basically humiliated Trump in front of the whole crowd. And you could see Trump just boiling and I'm exaggerating slightly here. We don't know exactly what went on through Trump's mind, but there is some speculation that was a decisive moment in his own thinking about yeah. he wanted revenge and he never forgot that in this like quite visceral way, this antipathy towards Obama. He, he had the antipathy before because of the birther thing, which I think people forget about, but in terms of 
thinking seriously about becoming president. But it's just like interesting to think about all the different counterfactual histories that we could have lived through yeah. if certain very specific things had turned out differently. Yeah. And of course, I wouldn't, I don't know if you would have still been here, Demir, but I wouldn't, I don't think wisdom of crowds would have existed if not for 9-11. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I, it, I just, yeah, it's the broader point is that the Iraq war was an incredibly consequential moment. So yeah, at the post, we, we focused on the bigger picture and tried not to do a lot of this kind of, I was right or I was wrong, but just trying to take stock. Before you go ahead, Demir, I do wonder if mm. there is a single writer or analyst who had the exact inverse of what you said earlier. Because we have a lot of people who supported the Iraq war, but now they say they were wrong. I wonder if there's anyone who was against the Iraq war at the time, Maybe. who now thinks they're wrong and they're like, the Iraq war was right. No, I was I, wrong then. I, I was gonna take you there over time a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah, interesting. I don't know. I mean, that's not accurate, but. Maybe by the end of this episode, you'll change your mind. <laughs> okay, let's see, let's see. Yeah, look, I, before we even get into that, I, I feel like the only piece, and I was quite pleased with how we, what we've managed to pull together at the post, but I'm, the only piece that really scratched my itch. Was mine. Yours always scratches some itch, but the real, the one that really scratched my itch was a really furious piece in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Gerald Baker. I don't know if you saw it. I could no. put it in the show notes, but I don't have the, I don't have it here in front of me, but he had a, a line in there, something along calling it the most catastrophic foreign policy decision by the United States since its founding. And I- Since its founding? Since its founding. Yeah. Okay. And I, yeah, I don't know. That's the part that, that sort of animates me more than, this is where I end up being the demon, more than the, the human costs of the war for our soldiers and for Iraqi civilians and everything else. It's the thing that's been animating me this whole time has been, I think how American Wilsonian ideals, when building to that kind of consensus that you're talking about in your piece, which we'll also link in the show notes in the Atlantic, how that actually forges that kind of dangerous consensus in, in the United States. And I've been reflecting about it. I'm very much for our supporting of Ukraine. But I look around me and I look at all the people supporting the war right now and I'm just like, God damn you. And I really felt that last week with, with, the, with the Iraq war anniversary and preparations for it. I was like, God, all you people, you're using the same arguments now for supporting Ukraine as were marshaled for the support of the Iraq war. And that's, I think, what some, somehow bugs me more than anything. I think this is where you and I will get into it. And this is where I'll okay. get you to embrace that you were wrong to oppose it back then. Because- But they're not, but Demir, they're not comparable. No one, to my knowledge, is calling for a ground invasion with American troops of Ukraine. That's- no, But it's not so much the ground invasion. No one's calling that because it's politically impossible, largely because Russia's a nuclear state. But it has gotten to a point and we saw this week Putin got indicted, an arrest warrant was issued for war crimes. I, that all amounts to a certain kind of declaration of regime change being necessary, or at least being morally required at this point. And I think that's where I'd push you on it, too. I, I, uh, let me find it. I think it was Brett Stevens' column in The Times ends on, on the note. I won't find the quote right now, but ends on the note, the one thing that... that he says, 
was a an enduring good of the war and that we're better off for it was that Saddam Hussein is no longer there. And it's a it's a that's what he ends his sort of I was wrong on some of the specifics, but I was right more more than wrong sort of piece in the Times saying that like, in other well, words, it, mis- mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. However, let's not lose sight of the fact that a brutal autocratic dictator, mass murderer, is no longer there to basically be a predator on his people and countries around him. And so Saddam is gone. And to me, I guess that's my sort of question to you, is not so much, joking aside, whether you'd reconsider your your stance against the war, but more clearly you'd agree with Brett on that, right? That the dictator's gone and that's a good thing. Like that very narrow statement. Never mind the costs for the moment, but like- Okay, I'd maybe go a step further. I don't think there is any kind of legitimate argument to the contrary. Mm-hmm. That seems like an uncontestable claim. Yeah. Iraq is better off now than it was under Saddam. Yeah. And the 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 level of disruption being a nice euphemism. Again, you can do counterfactuals at how many people would have died eventually after Saddam fell and there's no succession and civil war was perhaps inevitable. Seen that argument a bunch. But it gets at that sort of question that's sort of, I guess, bugging me about the, in the context of Ukraine and Russia, <clears throat> in the sense that I'm still not comfortable making some sort of case about Ukraine and Russia in terms of autocracy versus democracy. It reeks too much of the Iraq war. And in many ways, that's the part that I feel led us most astray in Iraq, was actually the logic that you espouse the most and actually even though you didn't subscribe to it at the time oh but it's that it's that's the part that bugs me most about the current moment about the rhetoric on ukraine if not our policy and people criticize biden for actually talking one way and actually being a realist cautious mofo in the other you've criticized him as such as but it's i feel like the main lesson of iraq to me is that argument is no good (laughs) that that the costs, and I'll just even narrow it, not like human costs, because again, tallying corpses, it's distasteful, and I think actually pointless work at the end of the day, because counterfactuals, how are you going to do that? I just go back to that, that the Jerry Baker's argument, saying argument assertion, this is the dumbest foreign policy decision since the founding, for all that it's done to our domestic politics, for all that it's done to Americans here in the world since to its military preparedness. It's just how it shaped us, as we were talking about earlier. It's just completely foundationally shaped the direction of the country since the invasion. But in the opposite direction. Yeah, but I feel I don't feel like we've learned any lessons. And I don't think and I feel like the real lesson of Iraq is is the one that I've brought up so many times on this podcast, which is my sort of also assertion that the world is a fundamentally tragic place that and that perhaps acting to uncertainty to make it better especially again this is where i think is your get get out of jail free card especially through war but not only through war often leads to not just unintended consequences but a mess 
that the world's complexity is also such that it makes things differently. This is why when I talk about Ukraine and my own sort of call it emotional commitments to what's happening there is that that it's just that these poor bastards are getting slaughtered by a neighbor that's just coming in. And insofar as we can help them defend themselves, I think that's fine. As soon as you slip into bigger ideological questions about changing the world for the better, now again, is it better to allow them to defend themselves or just get destroyed? Again, I'm not counting corpses here. But I guess my primary thing is I feel that in Ukraine's case, my case is just the poor bastards are really in a bad pickle. And insofar as they can be aided in their struggle, they can be aided in their struggle. It's not about us. It's about them. Sure, why not? But anything bigger than that really makes me uncomfortable. And I think that's that's what sort of the last week has okay. focused my brain. A lot there. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, let's unpack that. So when you say that a certain logic led to the Iraq war, a logic that I and others seem to espouse as it relates to Ukraine. Just keep in mind, the Iraq war did not have in any, like the democracy argument that we are spreading democracy in Iraq and that is the goal to make it a democracy. That was not the primary justification pretext. That was not how it was presented to the UN that was not how it was presented to the American people. The fundamental justification for the Iraq war was on relatively narrow terms. The fact that Saddam supposedly had weapons of mass destruction. That was the argument. Mm -hmm. Now, there were some secondary arguments like the fact if he has weapons of mass destruction, that means he's a mortal danger to the region. He will cause chaos and so forth. But those were all prim primarily national security justifications that you could have had from really any realist or neo-realist advocate. You didn't have to be a true believer in democracy to be concerned about those things. And Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were not, in fact, neoconservatives. They didn't have any particular enthusiasm for making the Middle East democratic. They were national security hawks who were obsessed with American primacy and the demonstration of a certain kind of overwhelming American power in terms of shock and awe. That was the term back then. So when people push back against me and say, Shadi, your democracy rhetoric, what about the Iraq war? In my mind, and I think I'm right about this, they have to be separated because they are completely different things. Now, when the Iraq war, as the Iraq war went on, and certainly in the post-invasion phase, there was this kind of retrospective justificatory language that was used and you started to see a stronger emphasis and that's understandable because Iraq was, there was a trend, you know, there was whatever we want to say about it. There was a transition. There was a first reasonably free and fair election to uh, what, January 2005, if I recall. Mm -hmm. But that's not, so I'm interested in just being clear about what phase of the war we're talking about and also the pretext for the war, which is different than 
yeah, anyway, so that's part of it. But on the bigger claim that Iraq is better off now than it was under Saddam, that has no bearing on whether the war was justified because there are other outstanding considerations. The cost, just because there is 20 years later a better political system, for all of its faults, and there are many, Iraq is more democratic today than almost all of its neighbors. Yep. With maybe the partial exception of Lebanon and the Arab world. That's it. You can make an argument that Iraq is on the, you know, it's really in some sense on the upper end of what's possible in terms of democratic practice, in terms of free, just basic freedoms to criticize the government, to criticize ruling parties, to protest, to have a kind of rambunctious media space where people can actually propose strong opinions on things. Iraq has that. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a kind of an utterly corrupt political class, that there isn't repression that ruling parties and prime ministers have used in the past and to this day. Nouri Nouri al-Maliki is an obvious example of that in the early 2010s. So, but that doesn't justify the initial invasion. And so one can have two seemingly contrasting opinions simultaneously. You can say that Iraq is better off now, and that's actually something to credit and to give credit where it's due, while also acknowledging that Iraq is a mess. So you can be democratic and still be a mess. No, no. And let, still face civil conflict. We all know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, let, I would like to dig into that and in trying to get pieces and talking to people, talking to Iraqis. I did get a sense, on the one hand, one of the pieces we ran... There'll be another piece, I think, later on, so I won't talk too much about it. But one of the pieces we ran is talking about the destruction of a coherent Iraqi identity, that basically sectarianism uh, obviously had a language of its own, and I think it's acknowledged that was always underlying Saddam's rule, and would have Iraqis would have had to contend with that. This falls into the unintended consequence of the war that we owe some responsibility to, and then the implementation of the Constitution as a way the country ended up being governed, that it's sort of the line in the piece was something along the lines of it it cast in marble or cut into marble the sectarian divisions in the constitution. So you have that political thing now. So I thought it was an interesting, a good point to make, I think, about that sort of lasting consequence. But that has nothing to do with democracy. Fair enough. You can have a sectarian democracy that, that doesn't necessarily end up getting governed under the sort of very modern Western liberal sense that individuals are what matters, but where parties are manifestations of clan loyalties and sectarian loyalties, and that's how it works. Okay, it's democracy, and fine. I guess you can make some sort of argument that's... And that Iraqis can at least build a future. They can imagine a future that they can be part of. Right. And which, is, which was not possible under Saddam. And I was going to say this, I'll leave to Iraqis to debate. I have no idea. I've never been. The piece does make the case that, you know, and it's the same sort of argument that I think surfaces, or at least is manifest in Atlana Alexeyevich's secondhand time, right? Of people who lived under Stalinism in the Soviet Union, when faced with the turmoil of the 1990s in post-Soviet Russia and Belarus and other countries, 
their lives before didn't have all the dignities and freedoms and these exalted things that democracy brings, but you learn to live with that. And so you don't raise your head and as you've noted in previous essays, not everything is politics, not everything is involvement. You learn to live with it and you're provided with a kind of stability. And then when contrasted with the 1990s in post-Soviet Russia, which I think in violence and disruption pale in comparison to what the Iraqis went through, there's at least a kind of nostalgia for the kind of stability and normalcy, maybe not stability, normalcy, that shaped normal life that was completely uprooted. That's, I think, one of the underlying arguments in the piece that we ran last Sunday. And we'll put that in the show notes as well for listeners to... to... Okay, but yeah, I want, go ahead. I want to just ask you one more question, which is a counterfactual with all the flaws that entails. If the argument was made that, not retroactively, but at the time, that Saddam Hussein is a brutal dictator, genocidal, arguably correctly labeled as such, what he did to the Kurds in the north with the gassings, the end of the Iran-Iraq war, an unstable dictator, and that, just stick with the genocide thing. I think you've made similar arguments about Gaddafi and Libya, right? We need to get rid of him. This is a dangerous man. So if that argument was made in 2003, instead of the yellow cake and the national security stuff and Rumsfeld and Cheney and all the rest of that, but if, if Bush's second inaugural, democracy inaugural, actually was in place in 2003, and that was the logic. Could you have been won over to the war? There was already some of that democracy rhetoric more broadly in 2003. It just mm. wasn't the primary justification. So for the if Iraq it was primary, could you have been won over to the war? Or maybe could later Shadi, could today's Shadi have been won over no, to okay. the Iraq so war? No, okay. So a couple things here. First of all, the genocide, mm. that, that pretext would not have been applicable in the case of Iraq in 2003 because there was not an ongoing mass killing right. that was happening in March 2003. In Libya, there was, well, it was happening in real time. Supposedly so, we stopped it, but you can't prove a negative. Now, he was marching in and it was going to well, kill a bunch of people over there. Already war. thousands there, had been killed. No, there was already gunning people down. It's a war though, right? Again, I, how do I put it? Like. Civil war versus genocide, whatever. How many, okay. I think it's between 100 and 200,000 Kurds killed. Now, you're, I take your point, not in real time. No, but, when but we're that's a very different, it's a very different sequencing because the civil war in Iraq happened after we invaded. Mm -hmm. In the case of Libya, as you're suggesting right here, not mm -hmm. only were there genocidal acts, there was the emergence of a civil war between Libyans and then NATO NATO invaded. So, so what the, you're saying so the is, sequencing is so important here. Democracy agenda plus ongoing civil war. Let's assume that in 91 uprising against Saddam that Bush senior basically ignored, let falter, somehow did manage to get traction. Iraq's starting to come apart. And it's taken 10 years of like low grade civil war. But by 2003, Saddam Hussein is maybe feeling less secure. The country's in worse shape. He's killing a bit more, and there's actually an ongoing civil war going on. Bush comes on and says, this is a tyrant. We have seen him kill 100, 200,000 Kurds. We must make Iraq a better place. We must invade, occupy, and bring democracy there. You'd lose me there because that wasn't even what was done in Libya yeah. in well, 2011. But, we but did you were not, unhappy. There, there was not a ground... There was not a ground 
component. It was not a ground invasion with mm. American troops, and there wasn't an occupation. So it's the invasion occupation that's a sin in your part, not necessarily all the other stuff. Like so I supported direct military action against the Assad regime during the Arab Spring, yeah. 2012, 2013, and so on. That's a uh, that's a pretty strong position that I hold. But what I was advocating in Syria was not a ground American invasion that was comparable to Iraq in 2003. So when people said, oh, what about Iraq? Are we going to make the same mistakes again? Syria in 2013 had nothing to do with Iraq in 2003 because no one, not even John McCain, was calling for a ground invasion of Syria. So I just think that once you actually get into these distinctions, they do matter quite a bit. No, but I, I'm trying to nail you down on, on what's the distinction. Basically, like, what's your actual red line? So it's boots on the ground. It's the idea that we're going to build a democracy for people. The Your policy uh, prescription is if there's an ongoing civil war against a brutal dictator, we, from the air and by airdropping and other logistical support, help out the insurgents. Yeah. And if they succeed, then we can send in USA idea or wherever to help them state build. Yeah. That's the yeah. That that's a kind of very broad, oversimplified, but that that is the general gist. And that is more or less what I supported in Libya. Oh, oh. And not to go into the details of Libya, but for those who haven't heard us discuss it in previous episodes, I suppose I'm one of the relatively small number of people who is still an outspoken defender of the original NATO intervention in 2011. And for those who want to hear that argument, I wrote a piece for Vox, interestingly, in 2016, and we'll include a link in the show notes. The title was something like, when thinks the Libya intervention was bad, here's why they're wrong. And I stand by, I'm pretty sure I stand by every single word in that piece seven years later. I'll just add a couple more things that I think are important. On the nostalgia for a previous dictator, people's memories of the past are distorted. They have no accurate access to what they were experiencing in the time because they are by definition. So if you're remembering something from the past, you're only remembering it in hindsight, unless you took very detailed daily diary notes and you can go back and then look at what you actually felt in the moment no one's memory of the past is accurate sure. so there's this kind of built-in hindsight bias so people say hindsight is 2020 maybe some of the time but other times hindsight distorts our memory and actually makes us draw the wrong conclusions about past events and everyone should know this just based on how they think about past relationships. No one can ac accurately render past relationships after a breakup. Either they're going to idealize the person for what they weren't, or they're going to emphasize the most negative aspects. And you see both examples with friends and family and all that. So 
I just I don't know why we should take seriously people's recollections of what it was like to live under Saddam. They don't I, know. I'll let you go to other points, but I have to just jump in here because yeah. two 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 fun things there. I like war and relationships being likened. That's good stuff. <laughs> they say what don't all's fair in love and war. No, you're not the first. And then <laughs> but the the other part that's more striking is to say that people's I don't know, to use the parlance of our times, and I cringe to do it, but people's lived experience can't be trusted. But at the end of the day, you're trusting people because democracy, because the people, and it's just people are inherently flawed and inherently have back, backward-facing sort of things. So it's interesting the way you put it there. There's almost this assumption that the people, the poor dears who've suffered X, Y, and Z, now they're distorted. But I, not you didn't say this, but implied, I, a social scientist who can see the big picture, can tell from study of history, from the study of broad historical trends, and I can tell you, peasant, that you're better off than you think you are. <laughs> so I just want to point out that funny thing and I, allow you to correct that if you want. That's not, okay, but that's not what I said. Okay. No. I, what you it, said. It's an amusing interpretation of what I said. It is what you said. You said that people can't, that people have distorted memories and they may be better off than they think they are. And therefore, if they're unhappy with the situation, we actually shouldn't, we should just tell them that they should accept the situation because they're better off even if they don't think they are. That no, no, I didn't say, like, I, so I'm not suggesting that we as outsiders come in and tell them you are suffering from false consciousness you are better off, except be happy that Iraq is the way that it is now. Fine. And you be won't happy. Say, you won't say accept, but you would say an Iraqi you're talking to right now, so you are actually better off. And you'd be like, I'm not actually I, no, better I would, off. But I would not say that because I don't think it's appropriate for mm. an outsider to come in and but you believe speak that. <laughs> No, I'm getting at, I'm, I, maybe there's a more profound point there, which is, since this is our philosophy podcast, is what's more real? An unhappy people suffering through shit or some sort of empirical study from abroad that says, no, in fact, you're on a path to the better place. Now, I guess the sort of, the, uh, the kind of analogy that springs to mind is, you know, someone's diagnosed with cancer and they're not feeling any pain at the time of the diagnosis, and then they're given chemo and chemo sucks it's really painful and horrible and the doctor says there there dear patient <laughs> we're making you better also it's a pretty pretty unsavory parallel maybe i'm just pushing that because it's somewhat uncomfortable yeah so here okay so let me actually say something like perhaps that might be more controversial more let's go yeah i don't really feel that i can make definitive judgments for Iraqis to Iraqis. I think I just feel instinctually uncomfortable with that. Right. However, when it comes to, say, Egyptians, I think it is very difficult to take seriously a piece of commentary or anyone who lives in Egypt now who is writing about their experience, their lived experience, all of it's going to come with an asterisk. And that's one reason that if you're looking for scholarship on Egypt, you have to filter out for definitely for Egyptians who are currently in Egypt. Hmm. None of that, none of their accounts can be trusted or taken 
as academically rigorous. And that's just because of the basic constraint. Egypt is a dictatorship, and anyone who lives there who hasn't left for exile or emigrated or, I don't know, is writing it from prison and smuggling it out, no one who is above ground in Egypt can be trusted in any kind of public speech or writing to accurately render the way things are or the way things were. So I'm willing to say that, and that's not because there's something wrong with Egyptians. It's just acknowledging right. the constraints that people live under. Right. The, another bizarre thing that comes from that is that like you're made to feel the truth under the torturer's torture implements in prison. That somehow clarifies the truth for you. I don't know. The parallel of that is, is that I can't help but think that a lot of liberals feel that way analogously about a lot of their conservative American compatriots. They have false consciousness. They are acting because external things have shaped this, that, or the other thing, but they don't see the truth. And the truth is knowable. Well, I don't believe the truth only, is knowable. And, no, no, okay. But you did say that you have to filter out for the noise of that. So you have to filter out for the noise of, again, lived experience. Sorry, I cringe. But like the lived experience of people living in, in red America. You have to filter out for that because once you filter out for that, you get at something that's more accurate. Maybe not the truth is the wrong word, but more accurate. So that it, there's a kind of technocratic bias in how you're talking about this that parallels a lot of our shared criticisms of the technocratic bias in domestic stuff. Okay, there's a fundamental difference. These arguments wouldn't apply to red state Americans or Trump supporters. None of these arguments are applicable in a democracy. Mm. We are a free country. And so you can't say that people are being repressed out of the truth. They have made choices and they have a they have agency and the state is not coercing them to okay. like Donald Trump. Okay. No, that, that's interesting. But I, I wonder if it's a slightly... <laughs> interesting. No, honestly, I, I, I always take all of our conversations seriously. I don't. I'm, we troll each other, but not, not yeah, that yeah. much. How do I put it? Walter Mead just had a column. He just got back from India. It was in the journal as well on Monday. I think the title was something like the BJP is the world's most important political party. And I think he's getting a fair bit of blowback on it because he's pointing out that they're quite broadly democratically legitimate. Their ideology is fundamentally illiberal, but it's playing to all sorts of illiberal currents inside people. And people are just jumping on him and saying, you're just whitewashing a lot of the truly horrific things that are happening in India right now. Modi is, and his goons are really cracking down on free thought. Are any sort of opposition is being shut down quite brutally. Journalists are being hounded. I don't know. I saw some statistics recently on press freedom where India ranks and all the rest of that. But it's a democracy and they have democratic legitimacy. And maybe this points a little bit to that I've, I know that you do, and I mean, I do as well, is I, I defend people's rights to be illiberal, right? Like that liberalism is not a, um, is not the truth as many of our, I think like liberal compatriots would like to hold it, even though I think both you and I prefer liberalism on the merits to illiberalism. But it's a little messy. And I think like it's a little too tidy. It feels a little too tidy to say dictator, crushes dissent, therefore anyone under a dictatorship is living in false consciousness. And then you get to a more liminal situation like say India today, which is democratically elected 
broadly legitimate party with an illiberal ideology that is appealing is now cracking down a lot on people. And I think you'd find anyone who finds himself in prison in India right now for opposing Modi would say that, A, would say something like India is no longer a democracy. I, would, I think you'd say that's demonstrably false. They have elections and they're electing people. But they'd say freedom of speech is being curtailed. The people are technically free to think what they want, but not really. They're not getting the full picture. They're getting indoctrinated. So the democratic legitimacy thing is a fig leaf, even already in India among the world's largest democracy, as people love to, to say. Hmm. So I don't know, how do you square that, right? It's that there's a slope there, right? That I think leads from like autocrat, which maybe is easy to you have put in a box, say anyone living under that is suffering from false consciousness. On the one side and the other side, you have perfectly free democracy and Trump never had any kind of hegemony to be able to shape people's minds, as you said. So there is no false consciousness. People are thinking what they're thinking. But then there's that middle ground from Orban to, to Modi. Let's just stick to those two. I guess you could talk about yeah. Erdogan as well. And then you have, you, you have still perhaps a democracy, but in its liberalism, it's slipping to something that is starting to limit that yeah. freedom. I don't know. How do you square that? And Because I, I think it's not nearly as neat it as isn't. you were saying, it right? It isn't. Yeah. So how do you work that through? Okay. So there's another thing besides democracy versus autocracy here, which is countries that are experiencing existential politics. In other words, politics, kind of politics that is so intense and so personally and deeply felt, that makes it harder to assess the situation accurately. And that does apply to America. So that that's an, another thing to keep in mind. And I, I think sometimes it can be helpful for non-Americans to write about American politics. And I wish there were more people who really did this and did this on a regular basis because they can keep some kind of distance. And I'm not going to pretend that, like, I have my biases too. They just happen to be different than the biases of the people who see everything through the prism of Trump being evil and the Republican Party being fascist. But all of us are, in some sense, protagonists in this struggle for the future of America. We all feel things strongly about what America isn't, what America will become, can become, should become. All of us are a part of that. And there's no way to create true intellectual and emotional distance. And I would also, another example is Egypt and its brief democratic experiment in from 2011 to 2013. Because it was so polarized along Islamist and non-Islamist lines, and because that was so existentially fraught for Egyptian commentators, in other words, anyone who was educated and in the elite space of debate and discussion in the public sphere, it was very hard to find people who were in between. And what would that really even mean in this context? So you had to take everything with a grain of salt. Anyone who was anti-Muslim Brotherhood was not going to be able to see the picture clearly because yeah. for them the future of their country was at stake. The identity of the nation that they hold dear was at stake. How can you be, how can you accurately assess things when everything is riding on 
whether or not the Muslim Brotherhood ends up in power, or if, if that's your perception. And then on the other hand, if you are a partisan of the Muslim Brotherhood, then obviously you're not going to be able to see the Muslim Brotherhood's flaws and faults. And there weren't really a lot of other options. Those were the two, those were the two kind of big camps, Sympath not partisan of the Brotherhood, be sympathetic to the Brotherhood, and then kind of seeing how the other side is. It's similar to what is happening in the US now, this kind of cycle of polarization where sides just get dug in. So I think that honestly, it was outside analysts who were the better source of information on what was happening in Egypt at that time. And actually, I would say the New York Times and the Washington Post was pretty damn good in that respect. You had people who were not Egyptian. They did not have a personal stake in what Egypt would become. That is important. Some might say the exact opposite, that they didn't have a personal stake, so they're missing key things. But I would actually lean in the other direction. That's foreign press, but so extrapolate that to the importance of free press. And I guess that's that maybe puts a fine point on where does a liberal democracy cease being yeah. a democracy, so, right? So in, in terms of understanding India right now, I would have to be careful about Indian analysts, not because Indian analysts who are there right now, Indian writers and commentators and pundits, I would have to get a better sense of, wait, are they pro-BJP? And I have to filter that when I'm assessing their analysis. That's what's going on. They've picked a side. Or if they're pro-Congress and see the BJP as the impending fascist party, I, I would just have to be careful. It doesn't mean I don't take their analysis, but I would have to just be aware of the context and what is coloring their view. And yeah. then I can go from there. We have some um, evidence, is, though, that press is being impacted. We have, again, yeah. I don't know, I don't know, and that's what I'm, how yeah. much you so trust it, like press freedom, like rankings and things like that. Because honestly, this a lot of this stuff subjective. And I think if you do come out, yeah, I think that's a good tension you're putting there between having a stake in the game and not, and objectivity. And the, you know, on the one hand, foreigners having some objectivity, and the other not really understanding what's going on or what the stakes are. But we have pretty good evidence that he's cracking down on the press. I guess I'm not asking you to say at what point is it no longer a democracy. It's an academic point, but, but it but is my, an interesting my, one to maybe press on, right? Like, yeah, my view on that is as the, con the conditions for democratic minimalism, a key one is elections have to be meaningful, competitive. They, the opposition has to have a realistic shot at winning. The playing field can't be so lopsided that the opposition has no hope and they become a permanent minority because there just simply is no way to communicate their preferences to enough voters for enough voters to even know what the other option is. Right. And that's what, I mean, and that's obviously itself subjective. It's tough though, There's right? To know exactly when you get at that point. And Hungary, I think, is a limit case. Yeah. And reasonable people can disagree. Turkey as well. Although Turkey, I would say does mean at least the minimal condition of the opposition having a chance to win because I think most Turkey analysts do think there is a legitimate chance that Erdogan might lose in the next election. It is plausible, and that tells us something about, oh, 
for all of its faults and Erdogan's authoritarian actions, there is still a chance that the opposition can win. Co elections are competitive. Yeah. They're not just pro forma. Yeah. Again, it's a judgment call, of course, and impossible to know because really it's just a poll. <laughs> right? That's a thing. That's the nasty thing about this. But I guess it's just, I just, I'm still, it's why for me at the limit, the these these categories are a lot less meaningful than our rhetoric allows. And by that, autocracy and democracy, because there's this massive squishy middle between one and the other, where you can have electoral legitimacy and be running pretty roughshod over society. That, and even the way you put it there, it's just like that there's a shot. If Erdogan loses, a lot will potentially have to do with his mishandling of the earthquake, right? And so people are upset with that. And it may not have anything to do with the fact that avenues have been foreclosed to the opposition and things like that, that people will just be upset enough that they'll vote against him. And even with a crippled media, half half-heartedly being able to give the opposition voice, it'll just be a thirst for something else. So as long as the inst institution of the vote exists and the mechanisms of voting are not so completely corrupted that there aren't literally people at every ballot box stuffing votes in for Erdogan, there's your minimal democracy. You can still like be pretty abusive of civil society and everything else, right? Yeah, so I'm not even really comfortable anymore calling Turkey a democracy. And if people actually follow along, I, I don't think I've said that for a couple of years now because I'm just not sure. And mm -hmm. I'll admit that I don't know exactly where the line is. But I think in the case of Turkey, there's considerable evidence that Turkey is one of the worst countries when it comes to press freedom. One, I shouldn't say one of the worst countries, but globally, but it is one of the worst countries in terms of how many journalists are in prison or have been threatened with detention in terms of just numbers. Now, obviously, Turkey's press space is better than, I don't know, pick a dictatorship. But among, let's say, not absolute dictatorships, Turkey is pretty bad on press freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's just undeniable. And there is a question of to what extent opposition groups can communicate effectively with their constituencies and building an audience and building and actually being able to reach out to voters in the way that they in the way that they might like to and obviously there's also there's also attempts to ban political parties and expressions of kurdish identity there's a lot of things on the list that you can look at and say this is making the playing field very lopsided in favor of one party so that's why i think it's just better to say Turkey does have some element, still has elements of competitive elections. But the other things that are important for even a minimalistic democracy are in question. Yeah. So it's probably just a borderline case. Hungary, again, I don't know enough. It's not for me to say, and that's why I'll defer to Hungary experts. But uh, Hungary is concerning in terms of it's probably there on the precipice in yeah. certain ways. And India is somewhere on the precipice. And then reasonable people can disagree about where exactly to draw the line. But does it really matter that much to what extent we're saying, we don't have to call it one or the other because it is a continuum. 
Yeah. Maybe, and it's a, maybe an okay, it's not really a pivot, but for the bonus episode as we discuss this, I don't know, this is a half-formed thought, but maybe you can help me push it across. I keep pushing you about the importance, like that you keep talking about minimal democracy in very institutional terms. It needs to have these abilities for the opposition to meaningfully be able to win through communication, through access to the ballot, through the press and all the rest of that. But I wonder, you, you said earlier about like the existential tenor of some of the fights in a lot of these places that, that gets in the way. And you're saying you're seeing it in the United States as well. To me, it, it gets at something else that maybe underlines our definition of a quote-unquote healthy democracy, which is why I'm also just skeptical of the whole Manichaean democracy versus autocracy sort of framework, which is that you have to have a fair bit of peace and stability and not directly counter your Atlantic peace, but just to, to riff off of one point of it, consensus about what the nation's about. In order to be able to have a quote unquote healthy democratic dialogue where people don't have to care that much about politics, where they can get engaged about specific issues that don't touch on these existential things. And at the limit for me, what's important is what what constitutes the limit of the polity, of the country, of the people, and less about how this is contested. Because it seems to me that if the limits of the polity are weak, you're going to find a, and it's a democracy, you're going to find a political entrepreneur who will be able to exploit them through demagogy to basically come to power and then stay in power and then use the tools. Now, again, I take all your points about the liminal cases and all the rest of that, but the more you talk about liminal cases, the less I think the dichotomy is all that important. I think it's more, it's more like, what does it take to keep a country together? It may take a strongman dictator to keep a country together because otherwise it'll fall apart because it's not a country. It may for all sorts of reasons, be amenable to the kind of give and take of democratic politics that you're allowed to, that you have enough trust in your fellow citizens because you believe them to be your citizens, that you will let them take power. But because the stakes are lower, that's really what matters in a democracy, that the politics doesn't matter that much. As soon as politics start mattering too much, democracy is in trouble. So I guess- I, I, No way to control the latter point. There's no way- but no, I take your point. No, I get that for sure. I'm just, I guess I'm pushing at what I'm trying to push at is whether any of this, for me, a lot of this undermines your moral conviction for the goodness of democracy. Like democracy to me ends up coming out as just one way to arrange things in order to keep It's the only nonviolent way. I don't know. You still need order in a democracy. We have violent enforcers of order, the police, they're some say too violent against their own citizens. There's a movement afoot to make them less capable. So again, it's not its not like democracy is peace. You still have to keep order. It's just there's a consensus that undergirds it. There's a consensus about what a democracy can do to its people. And yeah, sure, you can again take a step back and say it's, it has everything to do with uh, throwing the bums out, as they say. That's the most important thing. And that's true. But it's, it's true, but it I won't say it's trivial, but I don't think it's the whole story is my sort of feeling on this. You know what I mean? I, the, and I guess that's what I keep grappling with 
in all our conversations, and I keep trying to push you on, is, is there more to it than the moral? Is there something more, is there a, maybe not like morally satisfying, but like equally correct or maybe even more correct description of the world that doesn't take these moral categories to account? Such as? Such as what I'm outlining here, which is that basically politics is hard and you're going to come to different societies will come to different, to different points and not even solutions because that gives too much agency. I'm just saying, I'm just saying you have democratic decay, which we've now traced. I think we agree has some foothold in this country, has a bigger foothold in others. We don't know where democracy definitively slides from being what you would say is a democracy and what you'd say is not a democracy anymore. So that's, it's very okay, gray but those are all, okay. And then you get at this like moral evil and then absolute moral good. And it seems to me it's just, it's just accommodations to the absolute difficulty of like actually governing large things. So that, okay. am I making sense where I'm coming at this from? This is me trying to give maximal voice to, to my skepticism without saying truly okay, horrible but- things. <laughs> Okay, but your alternative doesn't sound to me like an alternative. Basically, what you said is different societies and countries come end up at different points because politics is hard. That is, but that's a very general description. Right, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. But I guess in the description, but who would disagree with that? You know that I agree that politics is hard. Yeah, no, you know that I agree that different societies, like there isn't a universal one size fits all to all cultures, religion, societies. This I wouldn't why disagree I ultima- with your description. This is why I ultimately defer to you when you say that there's some sort of religious case for democracy, but I'm not, I'm just not moved by any other argument for it. Like literally no other argument for it. Okay, but Demir, let me push you. Because yeah. I don't think that I've been able to pin you down on this. Mm. What is the alternative to, dem- don't tell me like politics is hard. That is not an alternative. No, but that- it's not about an alternative. There's many alternatives and we just outlined the whole spectrum of them. There's okay, the but alternative- which one is preferable to democracy? Preferable to whom? And then what consequence? No, this no is- I'm asking- No, I'm- but Shadi, I think this gets at the point of it, exactly at the point of what we were talking about when I was pressing you on the idea that some unhappy Iraqi in Iraq right now might spit at the very idea of the democracy that was brought to them. And you'll say, no, dear friend, you are on your way to a better life. And I guess I'd say, I guess my skepticism comes from that, is is not from a, like a kind of who am I to say, more from a kind of resignation to more, that, more than just that things are hard, but that things are gray and the spectrum is really gray. And that I don't, I'm not, I guess I'm not that comfortable writing off that nostalgia, which you just say is false consciousness, for for a life that trades that trades some sort of absolute ideal of freedom for other simpler pre- pleasures. And again, I was point pushing you on this before. It's you've identified that simple pleasure in your recent writings as well. It's to not be involved in politics. It's actually to not think about these sorts of things. What is a what is what does an authoritarian regime offer? What does Putin offer the Russians more than anything? That that is in fact a social contract. It's like, don't worry about this shit. I got it. Keep your head down. But you have to be you have to be free to not think about politics. You can't be coerced into that's just a different sort of thing. And keep in mind too that in, in proper authoritarian states, you can't really focus on the core four that I laid out 
in a different Atlantic piece recently on not following the news too yeah. closely. Yeah. Family, faith, friendship, and community. Can okay. you really have, can you build a community when an authoritarian regime is intruding onto personal matters of religious conviction and is monitoring your local mosque to see who's too devout and who might be a threat to the regime when a regime doesn't allow more than 10 people to gather at a mosque in between prayers because they're worried that can be a space for counter mobilization that's so um, fine but these are all how can you how can you actually truly pursue your substantive ends under an authoritarian regime i'm not talking about india or hungary i'm talking about authoritarian regimes where there is no doubt about their authoritarian nature. There's no debate about whether or not this is a liminal case. Okay, I'm, you know, you're focusing on faith for some reason. Let's even stick to community. If you can't pretty, form pretty, civil society organizations. But, but, but again, uh, civil society organizations, again, is, is very broad. It's just don't form like anyone you wish. Yeah, so it's that limitation. But for example, religious freedom, insofar as Russia is a pretty homogenous place, insofar as actually Putin has been reasonably solicitous of and cultivated strongman henchmen among the Muslim population of Russia. I don't know. I don't think like religious repression is it's a okay, deeply but repressive you, but, society. Look, I'm not, I don't want to whitewash. Let me yeah, hmm. go on. But I'm you just, know my view on this. Religious freedom is not possible in authoritarian contexts because one's own religious, personal religious convictions may require them to act in the public sphere in a particular way. This idea that religion can be cordoned off into like private conscience is not the way religion actually is in real life. It's also a distinctly Protestant understanding of religion uh, that it's the interior and then everything else is the exterior. Oh, no, okay, but Orthodox Christianity. Require, but Orthodox hmm. Christianity, for example, is a deeply institutionalized thing. It's been completely co opted in the sense that in, in Russia, the church is well aligned with Putinism. And it's actually. The Orthodox faith, insofar as I understand it, may be at the limit, but at least in the Russian manifestation, broadly accepted by many Russians, is actually a pretty subservient sort of thing. It's actually a good tool of control. Now, again, this is not a, an, a universal truth about religion, but I'm just saying you're focusing on, you're saying that somehow authoritarianism is inimical to the practice of faith. Now, it's, it's inimical to full mm. freedom, fair, but I'm just pointing to you this possibility, these pure categories that you're holding out are quite possibly impossible, even in a perfect democracy, unless you're talking about reasonably stable polity that's sure of itself, understands citizenship broadly enough to cohere, and is not threatened in any way, and that that's the ideal. That, to me, is not inherent in the category of democracy. It's yeah, sort but of I'm the... not looking for an ideal. I'm perfect. I'm fine with America as it is now. Not talking with all about, of, no, about no, the dichotomy, I'm, but yeah, no, go but on. I, we don't need an ideal. I'm not fantasizing about some ideal type. America has a number of the flaws that we've talked about. It has existential politics. There are some signs of democratic backsliding. I tend to think that they're overstated, but there are some issues of concern, obviously. January 6th did happen after all. Mm. So I don't know I don't know why the ideal type is really relevant. It's not my argument doesn't depend on an ideal sort of democracy. I guess I'm defending myself against your charge. What's what do I want? And I don't think I need to 
I don't think, I, I feel like that question comes at me at 90 degrees. So it's just, I don't feel like it lands with me for whatever reason, because it's not, it seems like an irrelevant question to a certain Why, extent. Wait, how is that? How is that an irrelevant question? Okay, can, I'll just say one thing before we dive into this as we close. Yeah. I am just to state my biases a little bit more clearly, and you'll know them, but maybe others don't. Yeah, you bring up the Orthodox Church in Russia. I know less about that. I am obviously influenced by Muslim majority contexts, which is what I focus on. And because Islam and politics in some broad, oversimplified sense are, Islam and politics are intertwined and more difficult to disentangle. So I don't think there's any real argument to be made that political repression can be treated separately than religious repression. Because Islam has a lot to say about politics. Yeah. And ostensibly secular authoritarian regimes have a lot to say about Islam. There's no way to treat these as discrete categories. So by definition, if there is political repression, there will be religious repression. And by definition, where there is religious repression, there will be political repression in Muslim majority contexts. Yeah. And I think empirically we can demonstrate that in any number of countries in the Middle East. Oh, okay. That's actually really enlightening what you just said there, because maybe then for me to understand and maybe for listeners to understand better, say if this is unfair, Islam properly understood and practiced, if it were to define the state or at least define how a state is governed. Uh, obviously, there's debates within Islam, but that's allowed. And as long as those debates within Islam are allowed to flourish, you can't imagine such a thing as Islamic authoritarianism. That's a contradiction in terms. It wouldn't be Islamic. But yeah. you couldn't have... But I, I, this is my ignorance here, but I wonder if you could push yourself to, to imagine an Islamic authoritarian state. We don't, have to, we don't have to imagine it. One exists, Iran. Yeah. Actually, more than one. But, then and it's I was, un-Islamic, I, you'd say, at the limit. Yeah, from my, yeah, from my perspective. But to be fair, it's also a different... It's a tradition that I'm not part of. I'm Sunni, and this is a Shia Islamist regime. So yeah. there's also that complicating factor that at a very basic level of first principles, there would be no way for me to get on board with the Iranian model however like it's just impossible right. and that's why it's pretty hard to find sunni supporters of their the of the doctrine of walayat al-faqih the guardianship of the jurist which is the intellectual and theological paradigm that iran has today but that's a pretty narrow criticism of iran right it's so conceivably and we were going into weird thought experiments around Israel around this is you have an undemocratic moment where where non-Shia are expelled and then you have an Islamic society under running a place like Iran that is completely coherent under the teachings of Shia Islam. So you still have an authoritarian it's a, it's a society. So Shia Islam can be properly understood to have a strong authoritarian in a secular sense expression. No, because 
This is a bit of a long conversation, but yeah. there- Yeah, but try and keep it high up enough for me to understand. Never under- never mind the listeners, and we can wrap on it, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that Shia Islam is naturally or inevitably authoritarian, because until Khomeini, the doctrine of guardianship of the jurist did not exist. Mm-hmm. It is a modern innovation, yeah. and some might recall a piece I wrote last year where I tried to give an account of how this might have happened, and we can include a link to that in the show notes, that it's the combination of the nature of the modern state with an innovative Shia interpretation. But it's not, but you have many Shias who don't share Khomeini's interpretation, but it does come from a premise that is contained within Shia history and the Shia tradition. But so the objection is- So you need that as a starting premise, but that doesn't mean that's automatically where all Shias are going to end up, yeah. if that makes sense. No, no, that makes sense. No, I don't want to. I don't want to push you there because I know that's not what you mean. I'm just. I'm struck by this idea that religious freedom. How narrowly you construed that in terms of sort of Islam, but maybe this is a deeper discussion about that, about pluralism, and maybe I'm thinking as we're having this conversation that it'd be, it'd be good to to maybe get Mustafa on again to talk about mm. pluralism and this sort of no, stuff. No, that would be fun. Because this conversation's got me thinking about that. Mustafa Akul, to our dear listeners, yeah. has been a guest once or twice already, and uh, you had a so good fight with him. Yeah, let's... I think it, this is worth a longer conversation. Actually, this could probably fill in 10 different other yeah. conversations. Yeah. I'll just maybe end with a more amusing but still dark anecdote. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but... In the famous New York Times interview with Khomeini in 1979, Khomeini said, it is a direct quote in translation, and people will include a link to the full transcript of the 1979 interview. It is available. You can read the whole thing. Khomeini says, dictatorship is the greatest sin in Islam. And I'll just leave that there. Make of that what you will. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. All right, Charlie. I think a rich episode in any case. And Indeed. as usual, ends ends indeterminate, but that's as it should be, I think. All right, my friend. <laughs> Great. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye, Amir.